to say welcome to each one of you. Uh, I've gotten a chance to visit with many of you already this morning. It is good to see your faces. It is good to be together. Um, beautiful day outside, but no place I would rather be than here with you. And uh, really, really grateful that you have joined us this day. Um, I want to remind you uh, about some of the things that are up front here. Uh, if you are here today and you have a prayer need and you would like for some folks to just pray for you today, this week, uh, there are orange cards up here on both sides with a box. You can drop it in, fill out a card, let us know. We'll pray for you. There are uh, yellow cards for if you are in need or you know someone who is in need, we would love as a church, as the body of Jesus Christ, to do what we can to meet that need. So let us know about it. We'll dig in. Our needs team will find out. And if you are a guest with us today, um, we consider you to be an honored guest, and we are thankful that you're here. The one thing that we have up here for you, aside from prayer requests and needs things, is a guest information card. Um, they're blue, and they're on both sides. If you would fill that out and drop that uh, right there in those boxes, uh, we would love to say thank you to you for being with us today and to see if there's anything we can do um, for you spiritually, uh, to, to uh, pray for you maybe, uh, to point you in the right direction in some way spiritually, um, or whatever we could do, we would love to do uh, as a church. So thank you for being here, and uh, if you just fill that card out and drop that in, we would really appreciate it. We're going to go to Acts chapter 4 today, so if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 4, um, and we're going to pick up right off of where we were last week in Acts 4, when we talked about um, place-shaking power. So we're talking for these six weeks, and we're kind of halfway through. This is week number four. We're talking about connection in church. And so each week we kind of bring up this idea, who needs church? Anybody here need church? Okay, we're getting it, we're getting it, all right, we're getting there. The idea is many people see church as optional, a nice add-on, something that's take it or leave it, or when I have time, or when I can wake up in the morning, or when my week's not been too hard. Church is nice. I like church. I'm good with Jesus. I like Jesus. But I can worship him on a beach, or I can worship him in the mountains, or I can worship him in my bed. Yeah, good luck with that. Right? Who needs church? Who's desperate for what God does here? And maybe, I thought, as I thought about that, and I see such nonchalance in the body of Christ, like, mm, take it or leave it, whatever, it's kind of nice. I thought maybe we don't understand how God designed for church to do things that nothing else can do. So we've been walking through the first church, and we walked through Galatians 6, and we've been looking at things that happen only here. And I hope that you're getting a sense of what you would lose if you don't have a devotedness to church, to your church family. And not just what you would lose, but what the body of Christ loses and what the cause of Christ loses when we are not unified, we are not powerfully connected. Could it be that some of the things that we see as weak and failing in the church are a reflection of the attitude of the body of Christ toward the gathering? Could it be that some of the things in your life that feel so empty and so at unrest and so foggy and cloudy are really a reflection of your disconnection and your excuses don't help and your reasons don't exempt you from the fallout of not being connected a couple of weeks ago we were on vacation and on a vacation we did something that our family really i don't think has ever done um, we started putting together puzzles now i don't know if some of you are like puzzle people you could give me the, the greatest 10 puzzles of all time or whatever but 
we didn't we have not really done a whole lot of puzzles but there were a bunch of boxes of puzzles at this house that we rented and so of course dustin decided to pull out the box of puzzles and start working on it and pretty soon he had sucked all of us into working on these puzzles uh and the, the last one we did the biggest one took up almost the whole kitchen table now here's the thing about puzzles when you dump the box out with all these little pieces it's like yeah right i mean thousand little pieces they all look the same um, and it's just a big pile. It's just a big mess. And you kind of have to suspend your sense of we'll never get there in order to just flip all the pieces over and start sorting through them, you know, because they're all, you know, none of the, the single pieces tell the whole picture and none of them are super obvious where they go. You know, you've got the edge pieces you put over here and then, oh, there's a red zone over here, whatever. And you start to look at the box and you're trying to sort through it and whatever. But here's the thing that occurred to me as we talk about church. As you put together a puzzle, there's one piece at a time, or in our case, three or four pieces because we had a bunch of us looking for pieces at the same time. But any single piece doesn't make the puzzle happen. And after you put any single piece in, it doesn't look dramatically different than it did before. But after a few hours of one piece at a time, you have a whole picture, right? And sometimes I think that's kind of what gets us about church. We have a crisis in our life and we show up at church once and it doesn't do anything or it feels like it doesn't do anything. We talk about small group all month and you go to one small group meeting and nothing really dramatically changes. But church, just like relationships, just like your spiritual journey, is not about one moment. It's about piece after piece, step after step. It's about a pattern of life that moves you from here to there along a pathway that God has called you to. And what you find somewhere down the road when you put piece after piece after piece and you've patiently sorted through it and says, where does this one go? And you've tried it in 15 different places. And then you go back to the first place you tried and you found out you that's where it belonged all along, right? That's sometimes what church and life and your spiritual journey feels like. It's this kind of discouraging pathway where time after time you're just putting one piece in and as you step back it looks no different. But this pattern of life eventually transforms your life. And you become a person who is deeply connected, has a real sense of purpose, and looks around to find that you have a real spiritual family that you know are there for you no matter what. And it's worth it. But it doesn't happen magically. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's like a, a magic wand that waves over your life and everything falls into place. It is something that is deliberate and intentional. And so maybe you've been around church for a while. We have a lot of folks here who have come from other church situations that have done a, a, a lot of hurt to your soul. And you wind up comfortably at a distance from church. And I get it. I get it. You think it's hard being in the pew when church hurts you. Try being a pastor when people hurt you. I get it. I understand the human instinct to back up and to insulate. I totally get it. But I'm hoping that as we talk about who needs church, you're going to hear God's call to move closer instead of staying at that distance. Maybe you've been hurt Maybe you've been wrecked. Maybe you feel like your soul is shattered into a million pieces. And it seems almost naive for me to talk about small group and church family and being devoted to each other because you already tried that. I get it. 
I really do. But what I'm telling you is the enemy will love to bring up all of that hurt and keep you away from what God keeps inviting you into. Because what we've seen in church is that church is the place of restoration. Church is the place where God's spirit pours out in a special way through his people. I'm inviting you, even though it hurts and even though it feels like you were stupid to to put your faith and your trust in this church thing, I'm inviting you to believe again. To step in again. Now, maybe you're someone who's never really been around church. You've never really thought about church like this. And so we're looking at this and I'm saying, let's take a look at what the New Testament church looked like, this first church. Today in Acts 4, what we're going to see is that a byproduct of church connectedness is that we are easy, or excuse me, eager and ready to give up what we have for the benefit of those we love. Eager and ready to give up what we have for the benefit of those we love. Now, if you are a parent, you automatically know the definition of what I'm talking about. Because it is the definition of being a parent that you give up what you have for the benefit of those you love, right? Like, all of those, you know, special lessons that we paid for, and all of those school tuition things, and all those backpacks we bought, and all those lunch pails, I didn't use them. They did, right? I, I went to work and paid for their stuff. I'm a parent. That's what I do. And why do I do that? Well, because the police will come and arrest you if you, like... No. Why do I do that? I do that because I love them. They're mine. And so as I love somebody, it becomes more natural. It actually becomes something that I'm ready to step into and engage. Connection breeds this idea of sacrifice. On the other hand, isolation, whether there's reasons for it or not, what it ultimately will do and the fruit of it is it will make you comfortable in your self-centered life. Life's about you. Life's about how you feel. Life's about what's in it for you. And you get to keep all your stuff. You don't have to give it to anybody else. They would probably not do right things with it anyway, right? Isolation gets you there. And you can argue, yeah, but if I give it to people, they might not do the right thing with it. And so you keep your distance, and maybe you've been taken advantage of in the the past. But here's what I'm saying to you, believers. That's all well and good, but that's not what you're called to. Because what you'll find is there's no power in that. You live an unplugged life. You're unplugged and there's no power in your life. And there's no purpose in your life in that safe, controlled environment. And so I'm inviting you, let's look at a bigger and better way to live. One that is guided by the Spirit, of course. Empowered by the Spirit, of course. But one that we've seen in the course of history literally change the world. And if you think that's too big of a bite, I'm inviting you to understand that it isn't. If the church of Jesus Christ will do the things that Jesus invites us to do, we can change the world. It's happened before. It can happen again. But we've got to do the things that Jesus invites us to do. So, We'll look at Acts 4, and we're going to take a look. Like I said, this comes right off the passage we led last week where there were threats brought to the church, especially against Peter and John. And they went and they prayed together. And then we talked about place-shaking power, the power of God on the people of God to share Jesus. And the theme of it was that all of it was done together. 
And that's kind of been the theme all through this first church idea. Together, together, together. They were very intentional. It was almost a magnetic draw, but it was something that they invested in deeply, one another being together. So here's, here we pick it up in verse 32 and verse 33. Here's what it says. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. So here we have this first church together. And what it says about this church after they prayed and the place was shaken and they went out and they spoke boldly was that they were all of one heart and one mind. What does that mean? When you hear that, one heart, one mind, what does that mean to you? Well, heart, obviously, when we use the word heart, we're talking about emotions. Deeper than that, we're talking about passions, desires, what you treasure, right? What gets you excited, what gets you driven, what pumps you up, your heart. Where's your heart? Put your heart into it, right? And so what the Bible says here is that being together synced them up so that they held the same things precious. They had the same things that they believed and felt were valuable. They had a love that was connecting them. They were of one heart. They valued each other. But they were also of one mind. And one mind is like how you see things, how you perceive things, what you think about them. So it's talking about their viewpoint of life, their viewpoint of the world. Now, do you think all these people had the same backgrounds and the same experiences? So they thought the same way because they all came from the same family background. They were all from the same ethnic background. They were all from the same economic background. Is that why they thought the same thing? No. In fact, the Bible makes a big point of the fact that they were not from any of the same backgrounds. As a matter of fact, some of the, the work of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost to speak in tongues was because they didn't even speak the same language. They had so much in, uh, different from one another. It was incredible. And yet the Bible says they were of one heart and one mind. They saw life the same way. They said, you know what? Here's what I think is valuable. And somebody else said, that's what I think is valuable. They said, you know what? This is what matters. This is what I'm paying attention to. This is what's on my radar. Hey, that's on my radar too. And I guarantee you it wasn't, what country are you from? What skin color do you have? How much money do you have in your bank account? What's your job situation look like? I guarantee you when it says they were of one mind, it wasn't because of all the things that take up so much of our time were in the same. It's because the big thing that so many of us leave to the side was the same. The cause of Christ, Jesus Christ, died and rose again so that people could be eternally rescued from God's judgment. And they had that in common, and they had, so it changed how they all looked at the world that they lived in, the decisions that they made day by day. And so this church was unified, deeply unified. Why? How'd they get there? Well, isn't it obvious? They were together, and they loved one another. And so the result of that here in chapter 4 is they start sharing with each other. They started saying, nothing I have actually belongs to me. If anyone needs something, I'm more than ready to give up what I have for God's kingdom and for God's people. It's kind of the evidence 
of the fact that they were together. Now, what I want to say is a lot of people talk about this as communism and socialism. And, we, you know, that's what our government should be like. And that's what good countries should be like. Here's the thing about this. This was not compulsory. This wasn't forced. This wasn't something required that you had to do. The emphasis in this passage is that it was voluntary. And they all eagerly volunteered. Now, I want you to think about your church experiences, even here. And I want you to think how we compare to this. Do we have people who eagerly volunteer to say, what I have is not mine, it's yours? And just let that simmer in your head for a little bit as we look at how they interacted. Because the question of how close are we to this today is a really challenging question. Could it be that our lack of deep community affects our passion to share? Could it be that the enemy's strategy to thwart the light of Jesus Christ in the church of Jesus Christ, which Jesus said, this is how all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And one of the ways to show that love is to share with one another in need. But because we have too busy of lives and because we have no time and no capacity for one another, we never get to the place where we're deeply connected and we're of one heart and one mind. So we never actually share with each other because we never actually know anybody's in need. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. How was your week? It was good. How was your week? Oh, it was awesome. Good, good. See you later. Good. I love you. You love me too. Bye. Nothing happened. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing people who aren't, you know, you walk up to some people, how are you? Oh, let me just tell you. Like, you know, I'm not saying everybody's got to do that. But the point is, in relationship, you can't just hide. There are people around in your church family who actually know how you are. Because they're walking in life with you. They're checking in with you. Every other week you're getting together and you're praying together and you're sharing what's happening. And This is a privilege. This is a blessing. This is a resource for you in your life. And people go, yeah, I don't have time for that. I've got all these other things I have to do. Well, what are all those other things doing for you? Are they worth sacrificing what God wants to do for you and in you through your church family? And if they are, so be it. But I think God's pretty clear they're probably not. And so we live in disconnection and we wonder where, you know, that sense of community went. Well, community costs you. Community is costly and you've got to build into it and it costs you faith. You've got to step into it and believe again. Maybe God's kingdom suffers because God's people aren't connected and therefore not of one heart and mind. And so the funds needed to help people and the funds needed to spread the gospel stay in our banks or stay on our asset list instead of being poured into what God wants. Now, I'm not talking about offerings. I mean, if that's what God does in your heart, you give us God. We obviously don't make a big deal about offerings. I'm saying, are you challenged because money becomes a God so quickly? It defines security. It defines power. It defines influence. And none of those things should come from your money. So God sometimes gives you money and says, now will you let it go when I ask you to? But we're safe off in our little isolation booth, never hearing, well, I didn't hear anything from God. Well, that's because you got all these walls built up around you. And you never will, and you know you never will. Because you won't let yourself get close enough to people to know where those needs are. 
And this passage says that no one was in need. There was no one who had a need. Everybody it said no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. It was the norm for people to be unbelievably generous. In fact, it was so much the norm. The next chapter, when you pick up in the next chapter, there's a, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they use this norm that no one claimed to have anything as cover for their selfishness. And they came in and just pretended like they gave everything just like everybody else did because it was such the norm it would be assumed that it was everything. I'm asking us as a church, what would have to change for us to be a church where this kind of sacrifice would be the norm? And what would we have to do, each one of us, to get there? And then he says, with great power, the apostles testified to the resurrection. There's a connection between generosity and sacrifice and this power of sharing Jesus. What I believe I know from this is this. Jesus is more known in our world and in our lives when we act like he is better than anything we could ever own. Jesus is more known to our world when we stop acting like we're chasing the same money stuff that everybody else is. When we start acting like what we say, that Jesus is the greatest treasure there is. Jesus tells a parable. There was a man who found out there was a precious pearl, a pearl of great price in a field. So he went and he sold everything he had to go buy that field. Well, that's an interesting story and it makes a lot of sense because he's going to get money back from the pearl, right? But the point was, that's the kingdom of God. And the point was, Jesus is the pearl. Are you willing to give everything you have and count it as nothing, count it as gain, because I get Jesus? Well, I'd like to have Jesus and my money. Why can't I do that? Yeah, try that. I I bet you money takes over. Jesus is more known when we act like his people matter more than our stuff. And so by letting go of earthly things, God was powerfully at work in them. I will tell you, believers, and I, I, I'm not talking to any single person because I don't think I know anybody that I could say, this is your problem. But I believe this is what we have in the passage, so I'm saying it. Holding on to the stuff of this life is an obstacle to God's full and powerful work of grace in you. Because you're so focused on keeping what you have, you don't see what God wants to show you through the surrender, through the letting go. You are too distracted by the matters of this life, so we live small lives, constantly at unrest, and all the things on our radar are the things of this life. And we never see the big picture, and we never rise up in faith to say, there's a life that's bigger than this. Because we're just trying to survive in all the details of this life, holding on to the stuff we might lose. So practically, what did this look like? Keep going with me, verse 34 and 35. It says this. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now just think about that. There were no needy persons among them. Among them. Isn't that an amazing statement? There were no needy persons among them. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Now, do you think that it was because there were no people who had less money than they needed to survive? 
No people whose job or paycheck was less than what they needed for the things that they were doing. Is it because there were no needs? No. There were plenty of needs. Big needs, evidently, from what we read here. There were needs everywhere. But what happened is they were so connected and so devoted to one another that they naturally stepped into needs that weren't theirs. And then it says this amazing statement. If anyone owned a house or some land, they sold it and brought money from the sales to the apostles. Now, I just, this is so mind-blowing, and it, it almost makes it seem like ridiculous. What if next week I said, here's what I think God wants us to do. Anybody who has a home or a piece of land, you need to sell it. You need to bring all the money into church. I think that's what we need to do. I mean, how ridiculous is that, right? These people volunteered for it. Oh, well, they were probably independently wealthy, and they had like three or four homes, and they would just sell a home here and a piece of land there, and they... Is that what you think? The idea is, these were people who were just on the border of destitute, but generous. People who were ready to sacrifice in that world, having a home or a piece of land was your security. It was the, the idea and the reason that you never had to worry about your future because you owned something that was durable, that was going to last, a piece of land or a home. And they said, it's only going to last me for this life in this world, but I want to invest it in the next life in the next world. I want to invest it in my family that's going to be around forever. And so I will sell my house or I will sell my land and I will give away the money. How did they do that? What would it take for you to do that? Connection brings the assurance about security and hope that's real for this life. My security and hope is not in what I own. It is not in my property. It is not in my portfolio. My connection and my security goes beyond this life because all of that stuff is fading away. And then because of connection, not only am I reminded of that, God will bring opportunities for me to exercise that. To give away sacrificially what God gives to me so that it doesn't have me. But too often, because life is heavy and hard, we miss that completely. And I think about this. This is sometimes how we think about God. If you had a financial need, what would you do first? Let's say some big thing happened to you. You got caught in a storm or your car got wrecked or something and you had a big financial need. What's the first thing you would do? Pray. Well, you probably before you prayed, you would take a look in your mental inventory of what do I have to pay this, right? What can I do about this? If the answer is too big for me, second thing is probably, oh, God, help me. Find some money somewhere. Provide for me, right? Now, what if God designs need like that to draw us to talk to him? That'd be pretty cool, right? But then we expect God to like, Give, we walk down the road and we find this lottery ticket on the ground that we didn't pay for because we don't gamble, but we find this lottery ticket on the ground and it turns out to be like $35 million worth of money. Oh, look how God, I prayed and God gave me money. Isn't that great, right? Because in our economy, the biggest problem is the need, the money need. In God's economy, the biggest problem is the disconnection of his people. That the body of Christ is dysfunctional and doesn't work. So what if God breathes need into lives of people here 
Not so that people can question whether he's punishing them or whatever, but because he wants our church to draw together. What if God has blessed you with a promotion or with the ability to make money or whatever, not for you, but because someone else is going to be in need and he wants you to be paying attention? Now, that's a revolutionary thought, but that's an otherworldly thought. That's a thought about it's not all about the here and now, and it's not all about me. Needs come into the body of Christ, not because God hates us or because God is unfaithful, because God could have met everyone's need. He could have poured money into all of their bank accounts, but God brought needs into the body so that the body would be connected, so that the body would be tested, so that our faith would be growing, so that we would respond to one another. Being on the receiving end of that sometimes is humiliating, isn't it? But let me say this to you. If you're the person in need, what if God is not trying to humiliate you? What if God needs somebody to be a willing servant, a humble servant, so that the body can get connected? And what if your number is up? Are you, oh, if I was the person to give, I would be so willing to give. Yeah, because you would feel powerful. You would feel like the hero and all that stuff, right? Most of the time, the people who have the ability to give are the ones who are really ready to hold on to it. And the people who need are the ones who feel like it reflects something value about them or whatever. What if it's not about your value because you got a lot or your value because you got a little? What if it's God's representation that I want you to work together as a family? What about that? Could that be? Should we just brush this aside and say, well, that's nice for them, that worked for them, but, you know, these were all millionaires, so they could do that kind of stuff. We have to work for our living. Do we just excuse it? It's a great theory, but are we eager and ready to sacrifice like this? And I wonder in my life, this is the question I asked myself this week, what would be a big enough signal to me that it was time to sell something huge for the sake, for the, for the sake of someone else's need? How would I know if God wanted me to sell my house and sell my car and sell whatever I had for the sake of someone else's need? Would I even be listening? And I'm not suggesting he is or he isn't. I don't know what God's doing. I'm just saying, where's our heart in generosity? I bet you it's deeply connected to where's our heart in connection. If we are hesitant to sacrifice, if we are, don't find joy in meeting others' needs, maybe, just maybe, it's because we don't really care about connection and we don't have time for it. And so I'm saying, do you need church? This is the system and the group that God has designed for us to be connected like that. Are we? Are we? Then it ends with this little story about a man named Joseph. So let's read this, verse 36 and 37. It says this, Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. All right, so let's just close with this, because I think this is a really powerful aside to this generosity thing. One of the believers who volunteered to give away their property was this man named Joseph. He was from far away. He was from an island, the island of Cyprus, and probably, like many Jews, had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So he was probably standing around when the, the tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind blew in on the apostles, and they spoke in tongues, and the church began. He was probably there for that day, traveling from far away, to be at the temple on the day of Pentecost. 
And like a lot of them, he just stayed. He didn't go home. He just stayed. He stayed there to be a part of the church. Okay? And so he's a Levite, so he's a, he's a Jew, but he's from far away, and he sticks around to be a part of the first church. His name is Joseph, but nobody calls him Joseph. Everybody calls him Barnabas. In the rest of the book of Acts, we find his name again and again and again, named Barnabas. His name's Joseph, pretty good name, especially if you're a Christian. You know, Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph, not a bad name, not something to run from. It's not like, you know, the book of Jude was written by a man named Judas, who was the half-brother of Jesus. But he liked people to call him Jude. Can you imagine why? Instead of Judas, right? It's not like you had to change his name. Joseph's a pretty good name. But everybody called him Barnabas. Why did everybody call him Barnabas instead? Well, because it means son of encouragement. And the idea is, this is the characteristic that defines you. When they called you the son of, it meant this is, this is the defining characteristics of your life. James and John, two of the closest apostles of Jesus, were called the sons of thunder. So you can just fill in the gaps on what that meant about them. Sons of thunder, okay? Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was an encourager. His influence, as we, will see, as we could see as we read through the rest of the book of Acts, went far beyond his time. This is not a man who was a big-time speaker or personality or an evangelist. He was just someone whose primary characteristic was that he encouraged people. Now, think about how much of an encourager he had to be if he sold his land and gave away that big thing. Like, this is a man who sold his house and gave the money to the apostles. But he's not known for that. He's known for encouraging. How good of an encourager does this guy have to be that, you know, the house thing, that was nice and all, but what you really are is a guy who encourages people. It was his name because it was his character. So do we know the value of encouragement? Do we see it? Do we embrace it? Every single person that you are sitting in this room with today needs encouragement. It is water to a thirsty soul. It is air to someone who is suffocating. And God has designed the church to be connected so that we can encourage one another. So if you're here today and you're living discouraged, maybe our church is failing you. Maybe we're not doing what we should, and this is a call to rise up and encourage. Or maybe you're too far away for someone to encourage you. Why do we need encouragement? Why is it so universal? Well, here's the truth. Every single person who's a believer is growing. We are not done. We are not finished. I'm, I've been saved since I was four years old, so 45 years I've been saved. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. God is still shaping and molding me, and he is everybody in this room. No matter your age, no matter how long you've known Christ, you're still being stretched. God's still putting challenges of faith in front of you. You're growing. And growing is a slow process. Have you noticed? Growth is slow. And because it's slow, it can be frustrating and annoying, particularly in other people. I mean, you can annoy yourself, but other people really annoy you because they're growing and they're not what you think they should be. Yet. They don't do this right and they don't do that right. And in, in your head or out of your mouth, you are more than ready to express how their growth is not convenient for you because it hasn't gotten to the place it needs to be yet. And so what do we do? 
we get really good at calling other people out on their places where they need to grow. Really good at it. Whether we keep it to ourselves and we just run it through our brain, or whether we have behind-the-scene discussions with other people who agree with us that that person really needs to grow. Or we find a way to make sure they know that we know they need to grow. And all of this is inspiring, isn't it? Have you been around a bunch of people who are like ready to point out or look at you with the look like, man, you really need to grow. And you're like, you're right, I do. I'm so glad that God is at work in me. You're inspired to grow, aren't you? No, of course not. You're deflated. You're discouraged. You're defeated. You're convinced. Never going to happen for you. It didn't work for me. I guess I'm just stuck. I guess I don't matter. I guess it's not good enough. What we need is people who see the value of encouragement. I mean, there's a place for honest and loving confrontation. But listen, there is not a place in the body of Christ for an undercurrent of criticism and judgment and graceless views of our brothers and sisters. And we are way too excusing of our attitudes towards other people that do not reflect the view of Jesus of them. We stand in judgment and we wag our fingers. And the connection here to me is simply this. It is really difficult to be generous with someone if I am judgmental about them. Well, it's their own fault that they're here. If they had just done this and this and this, then they wouldn't be. Right? You can't be both generous and judgmental, but you can be generous and encouraging. What's the power of encouragement? You know, you've tasted it. The power of encouragement. People who take seriously the value of it and are willing to look for opportunities to encourage the body of Christ. In this situation, Barnabas exercises that gift. And we see one of many examples, but one of the examples that we know is that there's a man named Saul, who's a Christian hater, who becomes the Apostle Paul. One day he's going to persecute Christians, to put them in jail, possibly to kill them, and Jesus meets him on the road and saves him. All of a sudden he's coming back and saying, I'm a Christian now. And all the Christians are like, yeah, right. Good try, Saul. We know what you're doing. You're trying to get in so you can not knock us out. Right? And so Barnabas, the encourager, goes to Saul. He says, come with me. Come with me. I'll take you. And he introduces him to the church leadership. He vouches for him. He stands by him. Because encouragers help outsiders belong. That's what encouragers do. They take someone who says, I'm disqualified. I'm disabled. I'm dysfunctional. And they say, that's not you. That's just where you are right now. But I see where you can go. Let's go there. Come with me. I'll go with you. I'll walk down this road with you. I don't think it's a hopeless cause. I'm willing to walk with you because I know where it's going to go. Come on, let's go this way. Connection makes that possible. And so an encourager is someone who sees more than what someone has done, sees more than their mistakes and their failures, more than their past. They are willing to walk with someone towards Jesus. And it brings unbelievable good because we have most of our New Testament because of the Apostle Paul. And we have no idea what would have happened if Barnabas, the encourager, hadn't grabbed Paul and said, I'll go with you down this road. Man, we need encouragers. 
What is the church missing? Because we've allowed judgment and pride to take us over and we've laid aside the gift of encouragement. Not fake, shallow encouragement, but sturdy, hearty encouragement that walks with someone through the fire. Even when growth is slow, even when someone keeps tripping and falling, keeps saying, come on, you're going to get it. I believe you can do this. Let's go. We need encouragers. People who will build others up instead of tearing them down. People who believe in the power of grace and mercy. People who know the value of encouragement. Maybe that's something you should be doing here in the body of Christ. Maybe your generosity is a gift of encouragement. So I've been asking who needs church. And as we close today with a song, I'm going to say, let's think about what we talked about today and see if there's something God wants to do in you. I'm praying that you can see how much God wants to do through this church family through the connection of us to one another. I'm praying that you will be ready and willing to sacrifice generously whenever God asks you to. I'm praying that our love for one another will grow, that we will be there for each other. Not because I know everybody, but there are some people here that I am in the foxhole with and I'm ready to do battle with. Is there somewhere I could sacrifice right now Maybe God's Spirit is prompting me to sacrifice right now. Maybe something I can commit to do over the course of this year, sacrificially, generously, that will stretch my faith and my connection to the body of Christ. Maybe you're one of those needy people that God put here just so that we have the chance to give to someone. Will you step forward? Let us step into that need with you. Today, I hope we grow more and more To be like the church that he established right off the bat. A church that is unified of one heart and one mind. I hope that the enemy's plan to divide us, to keep undercurrents of judgment and criticism and pride out of here. Today I pray our church will look more like the first church. People who love each other and are willing to do anything we can to walk with each other through life.